this is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Colonel Terry Chester's flying career spans some 42 years and 10,000 flying hours. He joined the Royal Canadian Air Force in September 1964 and in 1968 was awarded navigator wings. Terry flew for 3,000 hours on the Argus Maritime Patrol aircraft, where he spent a good portion of his Royal Canadian Air Force career hunting for Soviet submarines in both the Pacific and Atlantic areas of operation. He was instrumental in the design criteria for sub-hunting capabilities when Canada procured the new Aurora for anti-submarine hunting in the early 1980s. Terry reveals submarine hunting tactics as well as details of Canadian participation in NATO exercises. Amongst other stories, he describes how he accidentally attacked a US nuclear submarine, perils of landing in Gibraltar, and Soviet sub-incursions into Canadian waters. He also recalls airborne meetings with Soviet aircraft and a trip in British nuclear submarine HMS Churchill. The battle to preserve Cold War history is ongoing and your support can provide me with the ammunition to continue to keep this podcast on the air. Via a simple monthly donation, you'll become one of our community and get a sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Hello, this is Zachary Zabrowski, and I'm a monthly supporter of the Cold War Conversations podcast because of the wonderful stories that are shared from different areas of the Cold War. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If a monthly contribution is not your cup of tea, we also welcome one-off donations via coldwarconversations.com slash donate. I'm delighted to welcome Colonel Terry Chester, to our Cold War conversation. We were working with uh, the Brits uh, and, at, and our other allies uh, in terms of uh, helping to improve ASW because uh, during the 70s and 80s, the so before the collapse of the Soviet Union, the, the Soviet Navy were growing uh, and, and becoming more powerful, more effective, uh, and they were putting... Um, newer class nuke submarines out there. You know, the Alphas and the Sierras and the Akula hunter-killer submarine, uh, the new Typhoon class. All these submarines were coming up online, and we were seeing all of this and, and saying, hey, everybody, are you, uh, uh, is everybody paying attention to this? You know, but then, of course, after the Berlin Wall came down, the collapse, the Soviet Union and stuff, uh, there was a, a bit of a lull you said you were detecting um, typhoons and nuclear ballistic missile submarines. I yes. mean, the, the impression that is given to us in the UK is that our nuclear uh, deterrent fleet of uh, four Trident submarines is undetectable out at sea. But it sounds like what you're saying is if you know where to look and what you're looking for, you will find them. Absolutely. Uh, no submarine is undetectable. Just the fact that it's moving through the water. And yes, they can quiet the blades down, but blades, the, the propellers, they're little bubbles that come off the propellers. Uh, those make noise. Um, 
the the compressors, the auxiliary systems, the turbines, all of those things make noise. They can mask it to some degree. And, and yeah, there's a great, it's called a quietening program, uh, where they, they try to mask as, as much as possible. But that's a large chunk of, of, of steel moving through the water. Uh, and the only time that they are completely undetectable is when they shut off all systems and sit motionless in the water. Even then, there's some EMF and, and some sort of secret stuff that, that, that I can't talk about that the, that the submarine is emitting. Uh, if it doesn't ever want to communicate and if it doesn't want to do anything, it's undetectable. The moment it moves into a position where it's going to launch a missile or move into launch a torpedo or move to attack, it is vulnerable. Um, and all submariners know that. And you're right; they they brag that they are undetectable out there. They're not. Um, and uh, any captain, any submarine captain that is discovered uh, out there when he's when he's trying to hide and he's found. Um, is is fired that the, they that's how jealously they they guard that um of course i i go on record as being one of the few people that has is known to have attacked an american submarine um and uh i was uh on exercise out of uh bally kelly in northern ireland believe it or not we used to mm -hmm. fly out of there uh on a uh, we stayed at Navy barracks are called Sea Eagle, and it was actually right during the the troubles that they were having, the late sixties um, and um, into the seventies. And I, I was flying there, and we saw uh, we had there was a boat, our target boat out in the exercise area, which was off of Scotland, was HMS Ambush, a British A boat, and this beautiful old submarine, noisy as hell, had a a deck gun on it, an old deck gun. So anyway, we saw the submarine, it was sur surfaced, uh, and my nose called up and said, the skipper, uh, uh, target submarine on the surface, I said, Roger, prepare for Mark 54, depths of attack, you know, all simulated, of course, mm -hmm. down 100 feet, we come flying on in low level to ambush, and all of a sudden, a green, very pistol light goes out, and, and she calls us up on UHF, and she said, aircraft is a submarine, you've been shot down, uh, retire from the exercise area for two hours we said son of a bitch what do you mean shot us down and he said close me you'll see and they had this rusty old deck gun on the deck you see we still hanging on it and stuff he said you can't shoot us down with that he said you don't know that you close me within gun range and you've been shot down so i said god damn so anyway we we left the exercise area and i was seething mad that we'd been sucked into being shot down by an able so anyway, two, two hours later, I come back into the area, and I'm looking for this guy. I, I want to get an attack on him. And a skipper says, or the nose says, Skipper, you're not going to believe this. She's on the surface again. And I said, right. She, she is not, you're not getting away with it this time. So I stuck, I stuck her down about 100 feet, and I did come in from the sun. I said, she's not going to see us. So we're flying on in, and I'm coming on in. And nose is conning me because I can't quite see it very well. He's down. He's got a much better view from the nose. And he says, okay, left, left. Now, you see it? I said, got it. Okay, Bombay door's open. Whatever. And he said, skipper, uh, this is nose. Go ahead. He said, does, does Abish have deck, deck planes? Does it? And I said, no. 
and he said, this submarine has has deck has uh, deck planes, has the, the little uh, things that stick out the side of the conning tower. And I said, holy crap, it's not ambush. It's a U.S. nuke on the surface. And so I said, stand down the attack. And so I uh, closed the bomb bay doors, and I was now on like about half a mile back. And we fly right over the submarine. And the mad operator who's in the back doesn't hear stand down the attack. And as we fly over the submarine, he says, Mad Mark, full scale. And he pushes a smoke marker out, which fires out a retro smoke out the back. Uh, and this thing lands right on the submarine. Clunk! It bounces off the submarine's conning tower. And so I said, holy shit. Um, anyway, I pulled up uh, and turned around and turned back. And I look back and I'll see this for the rest of my days on this earth. Uh, the conning tower opens. And this great big sailor is up there waving the stars and stripes uh, from the conning tower, waving them at me. And then it goes up, um, uh, aircraft, uh, this is submarine, uh, uh, notify next of kin, uh, successful attack. Uh, and I said, I am so sorry. I said, you, you're right in the middle of an exercise area. Uh, we thought you were the submarine. And he said, oh, no. Uh, he actually bears uh, from me 250, uh, 10 miles. Uh, he's low and deep. So if you go from me out there, you'll find him out there. Uh, and uh, no harm, no foul. He was actually, it was an American nuke on the surface steaming into Holy Lock, I think it is. Uh, there's a yeah, it says Holy Lock. Yeah. It, Holy Lock. He was steaming in, into there. Uh, anyway, we he had a good laugh. I I was sure that I was going to get uh, reprimanded for attacking a U.S. nuke, but uh, I put it down as a kill uh, in my logbook, uh, and um, it's the only one I got. But anyway, then we left from there. And we went over to where he told us Ambush was, and I put in a depth charge attack on him. So uh, I I felt better about the day. So uh, that was the only time that I almost went to jail. So, um, and, you know, like the uh, the World War Two pilots, did you have a little stars and stripes marked on the side of the cockpit as a kill? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I, I, I tried to do that, uh, but I actually put it in my logbook. Uh, but uh, I was at the time, I wasn't very proud of it uh, because uh, it could have gone badly. Uh, but um, it, it turns out it didn't. But no, I, uh, I th that would have been a great idea, you know, just like the swastikas on the Lancaster, you know, the, yeah. uh, the fighter aircraft. Yeah. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. One of the questions I was going to ask you is, Is did any of the submarines have, apart from HMS Ambush, 
um, have any anti-aircraft capabilities. They didn't. When I was there, she was her biggest uh, weapon was, of course, to be concealed. You know, once she was exposed, they, they, she was easy, easy target. They had no way of shooting back. They, uh, I mean, they basically could have stood in the conning tower with a rifle and shot us down too. But uh, they, they honestly wanted to to get under. Now later on, once when I was flying the Aurora, uh, it was rumored. I never saw it, uh, but the Soviets used to brag that they had these missiles that they could actually fire submerged. They could, under the water, this thing will come up to the surface and could sense the the frequency of our turboprop and uh, would would actually fire a little missile up and, at home on us uh, and stuff. And so, you know, we being the ultimate cowards said, okay, well then fine, we'll develop new techniques where we can lob our torpedoes from a distance. So we actually had a, a couple of procedures where we would fly in and then about a mile back, we would actually do a pull-up and lob the torpedo, and so it would do a ballistic arc and land on where the submarine. So we didn't actually have to overfly them. But they, uh, that said, the submarine could detect us. Uh, when we flew over low level, they could hear our engines and props down through the water. Uh, if, we, if they were close enough to the surface and they were listening for us, they could hear us. Uh, and so... We always made a point never to fly directly over them unless we were going in to kill them. And so, uh, yeah, it, it, it was interesting later on. Now, I would suspect, I don't know why I've been out of the game, but I would suspect now submarines have all sorts of defensive measures against aircraft where they can, in fact, launch a canister that floats to the surface and opens up and fires a missile at whatever aircraft is in the area. And... The technology is certainly there uh, uh, to do that. But in our day, no, uh, we weren't afraid of, of the submarine attacking us. One of the hard fail things on a, on a check ride was that uh, a pilot attempted to engage a submarine in his own medium. Uh, and so uh, the, that, that was always a, a, ba a bad thing to do. We, <clears throat> we like to think that we were the, the hunter killer and they were the, our victim. On some of these flights, did you ever come across any Soviet aircraft? Oh, absolutely. They would monitor us. The bears, the Russian bear, uh, which, shit, they're still flying. Uh, they would actually come. They they would bug us a lot. Uh, they would they were sometimes on our frequencies, or monitoring frequencies. But the bears still to this day come and penetrate Canadian airspace. I know they penetrate the UK airspace. Uh, they, they skirt along the edge to get the fighters up, you know, see, see how far they can come before the fighters go up and bug them. But when we were out on patrol, we very often would sit, not very often, we sometimes would see a bear shadowing us. And of course they, they had a great speed, uh, and range advantage over, over even us, uh, with, with their turboprops, um, and the crews, uh, we, we would listen into their frequencies too. Uh, and uh, I had a Russian speaking uh, guy on one of my crews, and he was listening in to these two bears that were conversing with each other. He said, You won't believe what these guys are talking about. They're talking about the same shit that we talk about. Uh, they, they're complaining that, you know, the this, this shift is too long and that they didn't get any standby time. And then when, when they go home, they're on duty for another three days and he's going to miss his wife's birthday. You know, and um, uh, so 
so yeah, they were there, uh, but we were never afraid uh, that we were going to get uh, attacked by them. They were there to see what we were doing there. Um, I did get shadowed one time. I was up flying out of Adak, Alaska, uh, on the uh, it's when I was stationed out here on the west coast in 407 Squadron, flying the Auroras. I we were monitoring Soviet submarines coming through the Bering Strait, the Bering Sea. Um, when the when the subs, the Russian subs want to come from the northern part down through into the Pacific Ocean, they have to surface uh, through the Bering Straits because it's so shallow. So we, of course, will be there uh, flying out of ADAC, which is a, a long way out, uh, and taking pictures of them, dropping sauna boys to get their signatures and all that stuff. Uh, and when we're there, the, the Soviets were very unhappy with us. And I was shadowed by a flanker. Uh, I'm not sure what uh, what base he was out of uh, in the Soviet Union, uh, but uh, he came right up uh, and said to us, uh, you're in, you know, like you're in Soviet airspace. We weren't, of course. We were out over the Bering Strait, so we knew exactly where we were. But the threat was there that, look, we don't like what you're doing, uh, and if you so much as stray over this line, uh, I'm armed sort of thing. But, you know, you, you do what you do, right? Um, uh, we didn't get into some situation like the U.S. Navy where aircraft have actually been run into and harassed, um, etc. They, uh, they just wanted us to know that they were watching us, watching them, um, and that um, we, we knew what the rules were and we better stick by them. So, so yeah, it was always there. Um, uh, we were, but we were not, I was never really afraid that I was going to get shot down, but I was certainly cognizant of the fact that they, they could have if they, yeah. Yeah. I think people forget how close the Soviet Union is to Canada and the USA up in that Bering Strait area. They, they almost think of it as being a Western or certainly the UK think of it as a Western or a threat to our east, but obviously, you know, up there, it was a very close threat. Yeah. In fact, the Soviet Union is to the west, to the east, and to the north of us uh, in Canada. Uh, we, a lot of our forces uh, designed, in fact, the Aurora uh, and the Argus go on, we went on northern patrols uh, where for like 18 to 20 hours over the Arctic uh, to... Uh, we called them sovereignty patrols to make sure the Russians knew that we were surveilling our north because uh, you may be aware that large parts of that northern archipelago that are there other countries challenge uh, our uh, ownership of them uh, up, up to it including the North Pole uh, and so we're always we're up there as often as we can um, just going back to the identification of submarines so yes. you you by sound could identify whether a submarine was an enemy submarine or a NATO submarine. Absolutely. Uh, not only, uh, my guys used to brag, not only can I tell you what it is, uh, uh, I can tell you the captain's name. Now, it, it, they were joking, of course, but absolutely you could tell the type of submarine it was uh, and uh, whether all of his cylinders were working properly. Uh, and... Um, the uh, uh, where he was going, how fast he was going, uh, uh, what depth he was. Uh, very important under the water, 
although the ocean is a good transmitter of noise, there are many, many layers in the ocean uh, determined by temperature uh, and salinity. So when sound will go in a layer, it will get trapped in that layer. So if your Sonoboy receiver, microphone, hydrophone we call them, was uh, in the layer above that, somebody could be right under you, you'd never hear them. But when you got into the layer, then you knew you could tell exactly what depth that, that submarine was at. Uh, you could even detect, uh, I'll tell you a story about HMS Churchill, which was a British nuke boat. I was uh, operating out of Gibraltar. You mentioned Gibraltar. They, mm -hmm. a, a lovely base, hell of a runway to get into. I'm telling you, nightmare runway with that rock and, and the winds burbling over it. When, and also there's a public road that goes across it. As well. Yes, we, we call it the Spanish Road. Uh, and uh, we actually used that. If your wheels weren't on the runway by the Spanish Road, you had to go around. But what made it more difficult is the Spanish had surface-to-air missiles on the hill uh, at, at, on one, one end of the runway, and you had to do a circling approach uh, in there um, to, to not violate Spanish airspace. Um, and on gusty, windy days when it was really difficult to get your airplane down onto that little runway, uh, which had water at the approach and the departure end, um, knowing that these missiles were there and that our ESM operators were picking them up, they would track us in and out um, uh, and because we knew that there was no love lost between the Brits and the, and the Spanish. So they were painting you with their... Radar with their radars. Oh, absolutely! They would use us use us for tracking exercises. Uh, in any event, uh, we we were flying out of there one time, and the target submarine was HMS Churchill, uh, old British uh, nuke boat, and she was out, and she was we we told her she was then sonifying the entire Mediterranean, which meant that she was making so much noise that it was almost difficult to locate her. She was making so much noise. There was something wrong with her turbine, and she was making a howling noise in the water that that you could almost hear with the ear, with your ear. So anyway, we called the boat up at, in between exercises and said, "There's something wrong with your turbine. You're making too much noise." Uh, and he said, "Holy crap! Thank you, Canada. I'm returning to port." So he returned to port. He's tied up in jib, did his did his fixes, and then asked for us to go back flying with him. So we went back flying, uh, dropped our sauna boys around, all sort of on the hush-hush, and said, yeah, your, your problem is fixed. Anyway, he said, next time, he said, I'm, I'm going to be back in harbor in a week. I want you guys to come down to the submarine. So uh, as a thank you. So we went down there, and we went aboard, aboard Churchill, my old crew. Uh, and he said, you want to go for sale? We're going to go do so. I, I told you before, I'm a bit claustrophobic. But I said, oh, oh okay. So anyway, you went out, and those buggers, they they had this trick where they, they take a piece of string, and they tie it across a pressure bulkhead in port, and they tighten this string up till it's like, bing, you could play a, a high C on it. Uh, and then when they go to C, they dive, and then they take it back, and they show you this string, and the string is sagging like a hammock. You know, and they say, yeah. that's the pressure of the water that's crushing the the shell of the submarine, and that's all around you. And they, then they looked at me with a smile on their face, like they knew that I was not happy, um, and uh, said, uh, "We need, we need to go. Uh, we need to go back home right now." 
So, but what a great bunch of guys, those Submariners, I love them all. They're smelly, horrible people, but they are warriors like, like you will never, never believe. And they, they're all genuine, uh, genuine great people. I love them all, all those Submariners. I'm sure the Royal Navy will be delighted to hear that from you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you talked about the, the um, exercise where you released the uh, smoke canister onto the uh, the US submarine. Yeah. What what was the protection against you accidentally releasing weapons? Because if you're tracking these Soviet submarines really closely, there's yeah. potentially a possibility of accidental release, isn't there? Absolutely. Yeah, it, it depends. When you're on exercise, of course, you're never carrying live weapons. So we were never worried about that. And whenever we did carry live weapons, uh, it occasionally we would do it just for the practice, right? Because it, there's a different upload procedure and there are different cockpit procedures. When you've got live weapons, basically they are uh, they're armed and um, you can actually drop them unarmed. Uh, if, for instance, if I took off with a with a full bomb bomb load and whatever, and and I lost an engine, I had to, I had to dump my weapons. Th- there's a three or four big red switches on the navigator's panel that have to be uh, armed. At bef- and it, as a, as the torpedo falls out of the bomb bay, it pulls the arming pin out. And so, if you don't arm them, you can drop them out, and they'll just fall into the war. But in terms of, and I, I have to admit, I was never on a patrol, an armed patrol, where I was told there's a possibility you would, you will need to drop this weapon because there, I knew what the protocol was. I would go back if I found a submarine, whatever, and I said the submarine's engaging in hostile activities, he's surfacing, whatever, or he's just attacked the ship. I send a message back to base base they actually have to go to the prime minister uh and say we we want authority to release a weapon uh and so it would come back down and whatever and he would they would say yeah uh, attack whatever then there was a protocol i had to go the, the the ultimately the aircraft captain he was the guy that pushed the big red button to drop the weapon so there was a strict protocol with a checklist. You had to have confirmation with a cold word from headquarters to say you can neutralize this target. Um, and then we would we would obviously go ahead and do it. Now, something that was that is not known is that the Argus aircraft uh, was wired for nuclear weapons. They never. I don't believe they carried one even during the nuclear. Uh, even during the Cuban Missile Crisis, I don't believe we ever carried, we used to call it a bucket of sunshine. Uh, we never carried a bucket of sunshine, uh, but um, it was wired for it. And there were buttons on our on our uh, armament panel, uh, switches, that where we would arm it or whatever. But the protocols to drop that were like 10 times bigger than just the protocols to drop a torpedo, a depth bomb. But there was... I would you never say nothing, but there was very, very, very little chance that I would ever drop an active weapon on a on a friendly submarine. Because, like I said, during exercises, which we did all the time, we didn't actually carry the, and that we did carry dummy torpedoes. 
um, and when we were exercising against our um, British, our Canadian submarines, we had a bunch of O-boats, Onondaga class, very, very capable submarine. Um, I believe they were Brit, the Brit, British uh, class O-boats. Anyway, uh, they they were very stealthy and hard to We carried dummies uh, torpedoes, and when we were tasked, we would drop this torpedo, and it would acquire the submarine, uh, but it had no warhead on it. And it would close into a certain point, cut off, uh, fire its ballast out instead of exploding, and come to the surface uh, when where it would be recovered. Um, and the submarine would know that had this been a war scenario, this would have gone in. Now, there was one really untidy case where the cutoff didn't work, and the torpedo actually drilled right into the sail of the submarine, and it didn't explode, of course, had no warhead. But the submarine surfaced with a very ugly torpedo sticking out the side of it and trying to convince everybody that knows the attack had not been successful. Well, I'd love to see a photo of that. Yeah, there are. <laughs> we have photos somewhere in our archives of this submarine with a torpedo sticking out the sail saying, you missed me. Uh, wow. So, so yeah, the, the chance of that happening was yeah. not. Now, um Sweden during the Cold War had a number of incursions from Soviet submarines. Did were there any Soviet submarines sort of discovered in Canadian territorial waters? Absolutely. Yeah, we they did they did come into our waters. Uh, uh, I was going to say with impunity, they they often tested us. Uh, they they knew that they, if they were parked up off of Newfoundland or in the Straits of Belle Isle or wherever that pretty much any target in North America was theirs. Certainly with the big deltas and the big boomers, the Oscars, they, they, so we were very, very careful. And that's where the Sosa system that I mentioned earlier came in, yeah. is they, they couldn't sneak in uh, to our waters uh, and remain there undetected unless they were doing nothing. So uh, they, they absolutely did come into our waters there have been some rumors that they uh, they they actually came into Halifax Harbor, you know, and took some pictures out of the periscope, you know, and then left. Those those sorts of things. It was always they were probing us to see where our vulnerabilities were, and we were not letting them know that we were there. Uh, but we said, you know, you we know that you know that we know. Um, it was all like a big cat and mouse game, right? Uh, and they. So they they certainly did that, and I know uh, the Americans were absolutely paranoid that there would uh, there would be a Soviet submarine lurking off in Canadian waters that we didn't know about, uh, and they couldn't do anything about. So we worked very very closely, I, and like I said, I got a lot of good friends in the U.S. Navy uh, that I worked over the years with, and we worked very very closely together. They shared their secrets with us, except about their American boats, of course. But we exchanged data. When we found something new or whatever, we would put it into their system. And we were pretty sure that they gave us all we needed to be able to guard their northern flank. Because they depended on us. And then, as of course, you know, we were at in with NORAD, you know, and the combined defense of the northern airspace. But certainly the maritime approaches to North America, there was it was a great team effort between us and the Americans. And and I have to say with the, the Brits as well. 
we uh, we had a very close relationship with the RAF uh, exchange positions. Uh, we would send pilots and crew back and forth, flying your Shackletons, your Nimrods, um, your ASW aircraft, um, other aircraft. So the the uh, the triad of, of us. And you mentioned uh, Sweden, uh, Norway. We were and still are very close with the Norwegian uh, Air Force uh, and the Dutch. Uh, and even with, I say even, especially with the Germans uh, there and the French, the formidable uh, Atlantic fleet. We had um, uh, exchange positions with the French. Uh, in fact, one of my early instructors was a French Air Force uh, exchange officer. Uh, where we flew, we used to go into Nîmes Gallon, which is where their training base is, uh, and, and fly with them uh, out of there. So all of our European allies, we worked very, very closely with on, on ASW, uh, making sure that, that the North Atlantic was, uh, was our territory, and that when the Russians came into it, uh, that they, they knew that we as a team would work to make sure that they knew and we knew that they were there. And and where where were you when the 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 Cold War ended, or when, for example, the Berlin Wall opened? Were you still on the Aurora then? I was, yeah, yeah, I was on the Aurora, uh, and uh, we I was flying uh, down uh, down east, uh, and uh, yeah, I we watched that all happen, um, and uh, I I don't think we kind of realized, you know, that it was the end of an era and the starting of another one. I mean, you know, we woke up the next day and we knew that they still still had that fleet. They still had that formidable fleet. Just about that time, there'd been a really bad accident. I think it was a Kursk. There'd been a, a Russian submarine that had sunk. Nuke, nuke submarine, I think it sunk. Uh, and all the people, it was a nuclear meltdown or something. Uh, I'm just going to my memory. But but we knew that they were still formidable. Our only concern was that 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 all this, all of these things were going to fall into a bad hands, you know. Uh, because it, 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 from then on, it was unpredictable, right? We we knew who the bad guys were, and we knew what they did, and we knew how they did it. And now all of it was changing. But our concern was, and it played out. It it, it became true, was that the 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 Western Alliance has said, "Oh, good, the the Russian threat is gone. Now let's have a peace dividend. Let's let's uh, uh, turn our swords into plowshares, uh, and uh, and uh, and we don't have to spend all that money on ASW all on defense anymore. Because guess what? The big threat is gone. As they they used to say, if you want peace, prepare for war. Uh, and um, if things go south here." Uh, in a hurry, uh, we're going to be uh, sitting back there saying, "Boy, I wish we'd uh, we shouldn't pay attention to those old Cold War codgers like Terry Kessler." <laughs> Cold War codgers—that sounds like a, another name for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> the highlight of my life was certainly flying ASW in the Cold War. Men with a mission, we call ourselves, um, and nowadays. The, the the threat and the enemy is so ill-defined terrorism uh etc that uh it it's it's hard to relate to the way we were in those days um and uh, so I 
that that's basically uh, what I think. I I had a great career. I I feel sometimes like uh, like Billy Graham must must have felt when he was preaching to the unwashed about about what it was uh, to to be answering a call because we felt we were answering the call just like the guys did in World War II that answered the call and went and did their duty. We felt we were answering a call to do our duty and we had a bloody good time while we were doing it. Don't miss the episode extras such as videos, photos and other content. Just look for the link in the podcast information. The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road. If you'd like to help the project, just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information